Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we deal with life and it's an important thing to look after because life can be overwhelming. It's easy to become burned out, often without even knowing that you are. You know, that motivational lack that you may feel has crept up, perhaps the constant tiredness you're feeling or your irritability with everyone it seems. These are just some of the signs of it. Now we associate burnout with work or working too hard, but that really isn't the only cause of it. Any of the roles that we have in life can weigh heavily on us, and the relationships we each have in our lives take work, especially the most important one that you can have, and that's your relationship with yourself. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need. It's helped me figure out exactly what was causing me stress, and should you feel this is something you may benefit from, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone or even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you really don't want to. It's much more affordable than any in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales-based one person and the world's smallest cow true crime podcast, in which each time around I look for those tales that may have slipped under the radar, the ones that you may have forgotten, often those that you may wish you could forget, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. And I know I say Ireland all the time, but we haven't been there in bloody ages here on the show now, so I shall be fixing that very soon. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the so hot he doesn't know what to do with himself true crime enthusiast cat, Peeksy, is here as ever. And we are joined by yourselves, the main course, so thank you so much all. It's wonderful as it always is having you joining me and my beloved Mog. It means the world to both of us, even though I'm the only one who expresses it. And I do hope that as you've joined us for the episode, then it's one that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. Now, massive news on the back of myself, Adam from UK True Crime and Mike from Murder Miles' recent live show up in Glasgow how to plan the perfect murder and totally balls it up. We're bringing the show next to London on Thursday the 11th of August and other venues will be announced shortly. Now I have to say it was a blast doing it. Although we've all been friends for years, that show was only the second time that the three of us have ever been together in person. So we had a right night, it was ace. Glasgow, we love you and you set the bar. But we want to go from strength to strength with it. And if you folks come and see us, then perhaps you can help. We're at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square on August the 11th, with ticket details available in the episode show notes. My heartfelt thanks go out also to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this time around, with shout-outs here for Jill, Natalie Bell, Sharon Gorman, Thou, Jill Robery, Pamela Murphy, John Joe, Arthur Forksake, and Mark Clements plus Alison Hawkes, who has edited her pledge, and Susan Calm, Lou Siddons, Becky, Jennifer Midwood, Mind Matters, yes, it bloody well does matter, 
and Max Greenwood, who have each opted to annually support the show. Best fans ever. Thank you so much, all. Your support means the world, and I cherish you each. Now, stuff has gone out to some of you, and all of you have a feast of the full series worth of full-length bonus tales that being a supporter brings you, which I hope you find as entertaining as I enjoyed creating them. Now, if you're intrigued by a bit of extra enthusiast yourselves, and episode titles such as The Cannibal and the Cowboy, Predators in the Park, The Exploding Dad, one of my favourite tales ever, or the latest tale, The Evil Eyes of Loxton, then it's easier than a Love Island contestant to do so, and it costs less than Boris Johnson will get in his staff leaving collection to do so. It's simply the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, or you can do so using the link that's constantly in the episode show notes. Right then, to work. The tale I've brought you this time around, at least a part of it, perhaps many listening can identify with. Has there been someone in your life that you love so much that it's better described as an obsession? Someone who just gets under your skin? In a trickle of cases such as these, it can lead to a happy life for both. In many of them, it leads to an unbalance and problems along the way. And in the odd few, it leads to much darker deeds, the events of which I'm about to relate to you. We head back much more recently than we would usually do this time around, back to 2020 and to the UK county of Worcestershire, which is forever immortalised in the show's history as being the location that the most terrible case I have ever covered took place in. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for a tale that I've entitled The Lurker in the Layby. It was only shortly before 10.30pm on the evening of Saturday, December the 12th, 2020, that concerned residents living near Ankerdine Road, a rural lane in the area of the village of Cotheridge in Worcestershire, contacted emergency services for they'd noticed the glow of a fire coming from a remote lay-by quite near to a property named Maple Cross Farm. Fire crews promptly arrived only minutes later, finding that the cause of the fire was a vehicle that had been set alight, as the fire was extinguished, discernible to be the remnants of a BMW X5 4x4. But unlike the various vehicles that are countlessly stolen, abandoned and set on fire every day, with this one, there was a macabre break from the norm. As the fire was extinguished, fire crews could see that within the driver's seat there sat the immolated remains of the vehicle's occupant, burned beyond recognition. The remnants of two petrol cans could also be determined in the passenger footwell and behind the driver's seat. Now, finding a car on fire with a person dead inside it and one that's not at the scene of an RTC, but parked neatly in a rural lay-by in the dead of a December night, complete with surplus petrol cans inside, it raises suspicions instantly, and leads to the conclusion that there are two possible scenarios here. Firstly, that this is a suicide, an unimaginable way to do it, self-immolation granted, but who knows what solution is the one people arrive at when darkness such as that overtakes them. But secondly, that this is the result of a horrific, 
and brutal murder. As the body was taken to Coventry's University Hospital for a post-mortem, a PNC check on the vehicle, the number plate was still discernible, revealed it belonged to 66-year-old father of two, Neil Parkinson, a retired former sales director of Callow Oils in the town of Stourport, and who now lived with his son Jack and his 94-year-old mother, who Neil acted as a carer for as she had dementia, in the nearby Worcestershire village of Clifton-upon-Tem. Armed with this, and it quickly determined that the immolated body was indeed that of a male, it was quickly confirmed that sadly, the body was Neil's, and his next of kin were informed, his sons Christopher and Jack, as well as his partner Julia Adcock, the owner of Gilt Edge Farm in the nearby village of Broadwas. It was soon determined from speaking to each of these, however, that this was unlikely to have been a suicide, for collectively, Juliet, her three children, and Neil's shattered family were all adamant that Neil had been nothing but happy, devoted to his family, financially secure, and had no stresses or any underlying mental health issues whatsoever. Indeed, up until just an hour before his body was discovered in the remains of his vehicle, Neil had been looking forward to a spa day with Juliet that the couple had booked for the following day. All were adamant that suicide just wasn't something he would have done, it would have been completely out of character for him. So, with the absence of any discernible reasons for him having done so, plus the lack of any kind of note explaining why he'd taken his own life in such a horrific fashion, police had soon ruled out Neil's death as being due to his own hand. So that left murder. As a murder investigation was launched then, though the identity of the victim was not at the time released, the following day, Detective Chief Inspector Mark Peters of West Mercia Police told the media, This is clearly a very serious and tragic incident that has seen a man lose his life, and our thoughts are very much with his family and friends at this sad time. There is currently a scene guard in place at the lay-by on Ankerdean Road in Cotheridge where this tragic incident took place. A murder investigation has been launched with a number of initial lines of inquiry. There is an increased police presence in the area as we carry out our inquiries, and I would like to thank local residents for their cooperation and understanding for any disruption as we do this. At the current time, we do not believe there is any risk to the wider public. We are asking anyone with any information, including dashcam footage of a black BMW X5, travelling between Stony Lane in Broadwas to Ankerdean Road between 5pm and midnight on Saturday 12th of December, in particular between 9pm and 9.30pm on Stony Lane and the immediate area. We are also asking for any dashcam footage from any members of the public who are travelling on the Ankerdean Road from Upper Broadheath towards Broad Green, as well as footage from those travelling along the A44, Broadwas, Cotheridge and Ankerdean Road areas during the hours of 5pm to midnight on Saturday 12th of December. Retracing the final day of Neil's life, police learned that he'd spent the afternoon at home with his family, being visited by his 41-year-old elder son Christopher, his wife Carol and their two daughters, Daisy and Lily. A devoted family man, Neil cherished them particularly his granddaughters, and he saw them as often as possible. It was just one characteristic of a man who was liked by all who knew him, and who in the time he'd been in a relationship with Juliet, 
had become well liked by her family also. Once Christopher and his family had left, at about 5.30pm that Saturday, Neil had arranged to head over and have an evening meal with Juliet at her home, a takeaway which he'd collected from the new inn in Clifton and arrived back at Gilt Edge Farm with by 6.45pm, texting her beforehand to say that he was on his way. As the couple ate that Saturday evening, they discussed the spa day they had booked for the following day, each looking forward to a bit of pampering, and had sat down and watched Strictly together, before at 9.30pm, Neil had set off to head home. As I said before, he was a carer for his elderly mother, who suffered from dementia. Kissing Juliet goodbye, she described to police only hours later, how happy and in such a good mood he was when he'd left. However, when Juliet had sent Neil a text message, only shortly after he would have arrived home that evening, a usually quick-to-reply partner had failed to do so. Now, that isn't to say that Juliet didn't receive a message from Neil at all that evening, however. In fact, she'd received a text message shortly afterwards, at 10.17pm, just 13 minutes prior to emergency services arriving at the scene of the blaze. The contents of the message, which I shall come on to later, were enough to convince Juliet that not only had Neil, who the message claimed to be from, had not sent it, but that she knew exactly who had, a sentiment that was to lead police to an immediately strong suspect in Neil's murder. Back in 2009, Julia Adcock had lived with her three children at Good Ships Farm in Bromyard in Herefordshire, by then her marriage having ended in a painful divorce. Following her being newly single, she developed at first a friendship with a farm labourer and general handyman named Mark Chilman, who'd been employed with his father by her ex-husband, and who now took on the general maintenance of the farm in a greater role. As time went on, this friendship had developed, and by 2011, the two were involved in a romantic relationship. And for a while, Mark seemed to be the breath of fresh air that Juliet needed after her divorce. He was handy enough around the farm, always willing to help out, but although he was personable enough, he never enjoyed more than a cordial relationship with Juliet's children. Her daughter Holly was later to describe him as somewhat standoffish and difficult to form a relationship with. What was, at first at least, apparent to all, however, was just how devoted to Juliet he was. He was very quickly besotted with her. And for a while, all the attention and affection he bestowed upon her was flattering. She'd missed it, and it gave her the boost that she needed. For a while, anyway. But the more time that went on in the relationship, the more overbearing Mark became. There were no reports of any violence between the couple, but he became increasingly possessive and obsessive, to the point where Juliet couldn't have a minute to herself without Mark either being there or wanting to know her every move. It was like she hardly had room to breathe. Smothering someone such as this has to have a knock-on effect, of course, and over the years, the couple split several times as a result of his overbearing attitude. However, Chilman would each time resort to mind games whenever they did, threatening suicide and using emotional blackmail that would always resort to Juliet taking him back. 
By 2014, when Juliet had downsized her farm and moved to newly built Gilt Edge Farm in Broadwas in Worcestershire, the relationship was still muddling along as she was to describe it later, and it soon became apparent that the fresh start she'd hoped the move would be for them wasn't going to be. Like a broken traffic light, Mark just wasn't going to change, and their on-off-like-a-light-switch relationship continued in this vein for several years. He'd moved over to the farm with her and continued on in his maintenance role, although there was much less to do at this smaller property, and indeed the land surrounding it was largely unusable, which gave him more time to try and impose himself on Juliet. By 2019, Juliet had continued on with their relationship for years for the sake of it really, for she long found Mark Chilman difficult to live with, but afraid to end things, knowing how badly he would be affected if she did. But more and more by this time, she'd accepted that she was no longer in love with him, and it was a relationship by label alone. They'd still split several times over the years, as I've said, with Chilman sleeping in his van or his workshop on the property, but he would somehow wheedle his way back in, and the stalemate grew. By 2019, however, Juliet had developed a friendship with a retired sales director named Neil Parkinson, who had over the years done gardening work for her, and who she would often pour her heart out to, and by May of that year, their friendship had developed into an intimate one. It would be wrong to call this an affair, for as I said, her relationship with Mark Chilman was in nothing but name alone by this time, but her relationship with Neil developed from here to the point where, by June 2020, Juliet had made up her mind. She knew that she had to once and for all end her long-dead relationship with Mark Chilman completely. Although she tried to do this in as friendly a way as she possibly could, he didn't take this well. Chilman was still in denial and continued to beg and plead for weeks and months afterwards for her not to end things. Although she steadfast told him that that was it and he'd moved out, taking his dogs and clothes with him, He'd left tools and equipment on the farm and would return there often on the excuse that he needed to pick up various items. When Juliet told him to take away all of his stuff permanently, Chilman would use the excuse that he had nowhere to put it and, wanting to remain as civil as possible with him, Juliet was reluctant to push the matter any further. Of course, these excuses were just Chilman's obsessive nature coming to the fore here. And following this split, it took a somewhat sinister turn, for although he'd long since not had his own key to Gilt Edge Farm, it didn't stop him from making his presence felt there. In a series of events, he let himself into the farm and helped himself to books, cash and clothing which didn't belong to him. On another occasion, he'd left morbid items such as a plaque bearing the names of dogs that the couple had owned that had since died, as well as strange and macabre items such as a sledgehammer and even a noose, items that Juliet sent pictures of to Chilman's sister, Julie. He'd also left handwritten messages scrawled in lipstick on Juliet's bedroom mirror, saying, I am sorry, love forever, my darling, sorry, love Mark, kiss kiss. Another, this time on the ensuite bathroom mirror, read, I love you forever, I'm sorry, more than you ever know. Love, Mark. Three kisses. As well as making his presence felt within the farm then, 
Chilman was also to be seen at all hours of the day and night parked up in a lay-by very near to the farm, and whenever he was stopped and asked why he was there, he would just come out with a nonsense excuse that he was just trying to get better phone reception for his mobile. Yeah, right. To steal a catchphrase from another UK show, fuck off, Mark. So often was he to be seen there in this spot that Juliet's daughter Holly even coined a term for him, the lay-by lurker. For of course, the truth is here that Chilman was stalking Juliet. He was totally fixated upon the possibility that in moving on with her life, she may, horror of horrors, develop a relationship with another man. So obsessed with this idea was Chilman that he'd even bought a tracking device which on the 8th of July covertly fitted to Juliet's white BMW, all because he suspected she was having an affair. Meanwhile, every night he would cuddle the items of clothing he'd taken from Juliet's wardrobe, including items of her underwear and a sweater, that he'd sprayed with her brand of perfume that he'd bought online, which he later described as a comfort blanket. So, When he discovered that Juliet and Neil were now in a relationship, or rather, he suspected that they were, most likely between July and August of that year, Chilman wasn't best pleased, to say the least. Using the tracking device, he'd traced Juliet's car to Neil's home in Clifton on several occasions, taking photographs of it parked outside, and had increased his presence in the lay-by near her home, now watching for him as much as for her. As the autumn progressed, Chilman would maintain his surveillance as often as possible. As I said, it led to Holly calling him the lay-by lurker, and the Adcock family began to become more and more unnerved by its presence, so much so that they'd even taken to securing the farm gate with a heavy-duty five-digit combination cycle lock when Juliet was there alone. You would be unnerved, wouldn't you, with obsessive behaviour such as this? Now, there's no report of Chilman ever having confronted Neil Parkinson in person over his and Juliet's relationship, and what could he say, really, if he had? But he would certainly vent about the man he'd rapidly come to despise to all who would listen, blaming Neil, rather than his own flaws, for the failure of his long-term relationship. On one occasion, whilst drinking with acquaintances at the Dew Drop Inn in Lower Broadheath, It was later to emerge that Chilman had even been heard to say that he wanted to, I quote, chop off Neil's cock with a penknife. I want that bastard sorted big time. They can take me out as well, the way I'm feeling. Delightful, eh? So, had this strong feeling of resentment festered and festered then, until it had erupted in murder on the night of December the 12th. Straight away, when police had heard all of this, Forrest Gump's bloody commanding officer could have jumped to the conclusion that Mark Chilman was their prime suspect, but they had further reason to already. I mentioned earlier that although Neil had not replied to Juliet when she texted him that Saturday evening, minutes after he should have been home, she had shortly afterwards, at 10.17pm to be exact, received a lengthy text message from Neil, well, a message purporting to be from him anyway, though sent off an unfamiliar number to her, and with atrocious spelling, punctuation and grammar. I'll read it as it was sent, or rather, what's been released from the message, which reads as follows. 
Julia, it's Neil on one of my other phones. I've got a confession to tell you. I lead a double life. I use and abuse woman. It goes like this. I've been taking women of their partners and husbands for a very long time and I get such a buss from it. I'm currently seeing three women as well as you. I'm still seeing Sue from time to time. The very first time we met, I knew I was going to break you and Mark up. It's challenge for me and I get off on it. It took me quite a time but I'd done it like I'd done it to Sue and he was good friend. I nearly got caught a few times by him but I got off on that. I've got a problem. It's a medical problem called satyriasis. I'm sorry I've been so deceptive but that's what I do. Now this message to Juliet from Neil goes on to claim she could still have a better life with the ex. I think you should go back to him, in brackets, Mark. I now you still have a lot of feelings for him. I'm going to text Mark, try and fix things for you both. Go back to him, he will look after you and make you happy. I know that if you don't, you're fool and watch your back. Now this is the only part of the lengthy text message that's been released, but reportedly it also referred to two petrol cans which had disappeared from the farm a month earlier and which were found in the torched BMW. It goes on to describe Neil calling his elderly mother a burden and even at one point refers to Juliet as being a bit on the fat side. Also interspersed through the text were numerous uses of the words anyway, sucker and the phrase get off on it. Now if you get regular text messages from someone you come to know how they write them and when something is amiss don't you? And right away Juliet thought that's not from Neil that. Her immediate thought which she'd shared with police shortly after they'd arrived at the farm to report that Neil was missing he hadn't by that time been positively identified of course. Juliet's immediate thought was that the wording and how the message was expressed was very, very much more like that of Mark Chilman. Just before 5.45pm then, on Sunday December the 13th, 2020, 51-year-old Mark Chilman was arrested at his home address of the old post office, some 12 miles away from Gilt Edge Farm, on Rainbow Street in the Herefordshire village of Pencombe, on suspicion of the murder of Neil Parkinson, to which he replied, Murder? He was subsequently taken to Worcester Police Station, where, over the next three days, he was interviewed in six stages. Although he was offered free and independent legal advice, Chilman declined this, saying he had nothing to hide. Interestingly though, and which set the tone for each interview going forth, when asked, Chilman said he considered his home address to be Gilt Edge Farm, but accepted he'd been, I quote, kicked out three months or so before this interview took place. Now, Chilman's initial alibi was that he was at Bromyard Downs at the time of the alleged murder, where that he claimed he had nodded off around midnight before making his way back home. But as this couldn't be corroborated, and as piece by piece the collected evidence from the rapidly moving investigation was put before him, Chilman's story changed to suit. He would in fact come out with some of the tallest stories you're ever likely to hear. However, like the UK public with a Boris Johnson apology, none of this was washing with those listening, and on the morning of Thursday the 17th of December, 
Mark Andrew Chilman appeared at Kidderminster Magistrates Court, charged with the murder of Neil Parkinson, and a further count of stalking involving serious alarm or distress, charges which he steadfast denied. It's reported through sources also that a 27-year-old man was also arrested in connection with the murder on the Wednesday, although was later released on bail and no charges were brought against him, though who this individual is and why exactly he was arrested remains unclear. It was almost nine months later, on Monday the 2nd of August 2021, that Mark Chilman, wearing jeans, a grey t-shirt and a Covid mask, appeared in the dock of court number one at Worcester Crown Court. Coincidentally, the same dock that almost 50 years before, the monster of Worcester, David McGreevy, had stood in, where he entered a plea of not guilty to the murder of 66-year-old Neil Parkinson. Presided over by Judge James Burbridge QC, the honorary recorder of Worcester, the city's most senior judge, the case was opened by counsel for the prosecution, Mark Hayward QC, who described to the jury in his opening address the scene of the car fire in the lay-by in Ankerdine Road, running parallel to the A44 the previous December, saying, At around 10.30pm on Saturday, December the 12th, 2020, people who live nearby to that lay-by noticed the glow of a fire coming from it. At first, it didn't seem like much to worry about. Nevertheless, the fire service were called, and upon arrival, they found a BMW X5 burning fiercely. When the fire officers were able to see safely into the car, they found that the body of a man, subsequently identified as Neil Parkinson, was in the driver's seat of that burning car. The evidence gathered in the investigation into how Mr Parkinson met his death that night demonstrates he was murdered, we say by this defendant, Mark Chilman, who had arranged the body in the car and set light to it to make it appear as though Mr Parkinson had killed himself. The court heard how a post-mortem was carried out on Mr Parkinson's body at University Hospital in Coventry on December the 14th. As you would expect, the body was very significantly burnt, said Mr Haywood. However, it was not significantly burned enough for the post-mortem examination to discover evidence of wounding to the base of the skull. The depressed fracture, subdural hematoma and traumatic brain injury had been caused by a heavy blow struck with a weighty force, a wound that would have incapacitated him and rendered him unconscious. The extent of the fractures meant that medical experts could not be certain what weapon was used to strike the blow, but it was clear that substantial force had been used and that the object had a straight edge, similar to that found on a hammer. This, prosecutors argued, suggests he was still unconscious when placed in the driver's seat and the car set alight. Mr Haywood then began to outline Chilman's potential motive for murder, telling the court of the relationship between Chilman and his long-term partner, Julia Adcock, as I outlined earlier. In June 2020, Julia had, said Mr Haywood, ended a long and, for her part, often unhappy relationship with Mr Chilman. He then continued to tell jurors of Chilman's obsessive behaviour, again, as we've heard, saying, rather than accept the reality, Mr Chilman continued to find pretexts to continue to have contact with her, 
but he was also obsessively concerned with what she was doing. Juliet's daughter, Holly Bradshaw, giving evidence, said that her mother had lived with Chilman, who she referred to in court as a jealous person, for around 10 years, and that as their relationship began to deteriorate, she would ask him to leave Gilt Edge Farm and he would collect his stuff. Holly said that on these occasions, Chilman would usually stay in an outbuilding on the farm which served as his workshop or in a garage there. However, she said that Chilman, well used to emotional blackmail, would then make threats of suicide, and that as a result, Mum was very worried about his state of mind, and so she would take him back. She told the court that he'd not taken the end of the relationship with her mother in June 2020 well at all, which led to the aforementioned escalation of his obsessive behaviour, because breaking in and writing apologies on mirrors in lipstick isn't creepy as fuck at all, is it? She described how she would come across him in the vicinity of the farm lots of times following their split and would see him in his pickup truck on the lane near to the farm where he would glare at her. She said she began to feel uneasy and unnerved whenever she would see Chilman and would contact her mother, telling her he was nearby. You coined an expression for him, said Mr Haywood. We used to refer to him as the lay-by lurker and say he was lurking in the lay-by again, replied Holly. Describing Neil Parkinson, Holly said, I loved Neil. He was kind, generous and helpful, the polar opposite of Mark. She told the court that she'd seen Neil on the night of his death and when asked if he'd seemed unusual in his mood or his behaviour, she denied this, telling the court he was happy and cheery, his usual self. She said she and her husband Tom had been going to Worcester to collect a pizza and had seen Mr Parkinson's car as he headed back to the farm with his own takeaway from the new inn in Clifton. However, as they left to get pizza, Miss Bradshaw said that she saw Chilman's Mitsubishi parked on the lane near to the farm. The man she saw inside was of similar stature to Chilman, though she said he turned his face down so I couldn't clearly see. She said that though she could not be 100% it was Mark, as it was dark and because of the glare of the headlights, she was 100% sure that it was his car. Holly said that she either phoned her mother about this or asked her husband to do so before they carried on to Worcester. She then told the court that the first she knew of Mr Parkinson's death was through a phone call from the police at a home in Martley at 1.30am, explaining, They asked me if I could come back to Gilt Edge because mum was quite distressed, which made me distressed. I asked, Why, what's happened? And the police officer informed me that Mr Parkinson had gone missing. Julia Adcock was next up to give evidence and discussed at length her relationship with Chilman, saying how while she paid the household bills, Chilman contributed some food and his time and that she accepted he was busy about the farm. However, she described how their relationship had deteriorated over time due to a moodiness in his manner, describing, He became just miserable, bad-tempered, didn't want to spend so much time with me and started arguing with my daughter Holly. Juliet described Chilman as having a difficult nature. She added, It's fair to say I was a bit intimidated by him and I was always trying to keep the peace. She told the jury he'd moved out several times since they'd been together, but Chilman would not ultimately leave, saying, 
I tried to remain kind, civil, be as nice as I possibly could to back away from the relationship. When I'd asked him to leave several times, he would sleep in his van on my property or in a shed or in my garage. She also told how Chilman threatened suicide on occasions such as these and was sending messages like, farewell, you'll never see me again, where she would then acquiesce, but by June 2020, enough was enough and she finally wanted Chilman out of her life completely. I didn't want to be horrible to him, but then I wanted to move on with my life. There was no way I was going to resume a relationship, she said. Her relationship with Neil Parkinson had begun because of their shared love of gardening after he did some work for her. Though they'd been friends for some time previously, she told the court, an intimate relationship between the two had begun in April 2019. It had soon gone from strength to strength. She'd met and liked Neil's family, and he'd met and become part of hers too, and the couple were very happy together and had so much to look forward to. Describing the night of December the 12th of the previous year, Juliet told the court how Neil had headed home to Clifton-upon-Tem after dinner at about 21.30 that evening, seemingly happy and in a good mood, according to Juliet. She texted him shortly after he should have been home and received no reply, but at 10.17pm, just shortly before Neil was discovered in his torched BMW, she'd received a text message from an unknown number purporting to be from Neil, in which he admitted to having a double life as a serial adulterer and an abuser of women, as we've heard. Mr Haywood told the court, Her immediate thought was the words were very much the way Mr Chilman spoke and how he expressed himself. Questioned as to why she thought this by the prosecution, Julia explained there was loads in the text message which matched Chilman's way of speaking, saying, the general spelling and grammar is appalling for a start. And they really are in the message if you read it. As a slight aside, poor spelling and grammar in a message is a real, real pet hate of mine also. What a bastard it is. If I ever get a message with text speak in it, I won't reply to it. Why would you try and write something that if you said it aloud, you would just sound stupid? She described how the use of words like sucker and the overuse of the word anyway in the message, particularly the latter, were typical of Chilman's use of language. He would use that word a lot, she told the jury. The phrase get off on it in the text, and mistakes such as the misspelling of buzz, and the use of woman instead of the collective women, were characteristic of the way Chilman would write, she told the court. And as for reference to her as being a bit on the fat side, and to Neil's mother being a burden, she outright refuted these, saying, That's just a term that somebody like Neil would not use. He was a gentleman, and he thought the world of his mother. Now, not only was a linguist who had analysed this message in total agreement with Juliet, but later analysis showed that this message indeed came from an unregistered pay-as-you-go mobile phone, which Mr Haywood said the prosecution knew had been purchased by Chilman in October 2020. Even in his death, Chilman had attempted to blacken the name of Mr. Parkinson, Mr. Haywood said. Painting a picture of what they believed and what the evidence suggested had happened, 
Christopher Chilman had told several differing stories during interviews, and we shall get on to his evidence shortly. Mr Hayward told the court that late on the evening of Saturday December the 12th of the previous year, he had enacted a sinister plot to get rid of Mr Parkinson, which was said to be part of a wider plan to engineer a reconciliation with the woman he could not bear to see rejecting him. Chilman, the prosecution alleged, had lain in wait that dark evening near to the gate of Giltedge Farm and had intercepted Neil Parkinson as he stopped to lock the gates of the farm with a combination lock, a precaution that had been imposed due to Chilman's own obsessive behaviour, whilst on his way home to Clifton-upon-Tem. Attacking him from behind, he had struck Neil over the head with an unknown weapon. The object had never been revealed nor recovered, causing Neil massive head injuries fracturing his skull and rendering him immediately unconscious and incapacitated. Evidence of the attack, in the form of Neil's blood, was found on the gatepost to the farm, on a broken plant pot nearby, on the combination lock which had been dropped to the ground and trodden into the mud, on a torch belonging to Chilman, and even on Neil's keyring from his car keys, which was also found nearby to the gate. Under cover of darkness, Chilman then dragged Neil Parkinson into the passenger seat of his own black BMW X5 and had driven the short distance to the lay-by at Ankerdean Road, near Cotheridge, where he had stopped and parked up, then manoeuvred Neil into the driver's seat. He then used around 40 litres of petrol from two jerry cans that he'd stolen about a month previously from Giltedge Farm, as Julia Adcock had described to the court had gone missing and had splashed these around the interior of the vehicle before setting them alight, deliberately centering the inferno around Neil's body and staging it to look like he'd committed suicide. One of these jerry cans was later found in the front passenger footwell of the burnt-out BMW, whilst a smaller jerry can was found wedged behind the driver's seat. The melted remains of a green plastic fuel can were also found in the boot of the vehicle, although Mr Parkinson was known to carry one of these, because the fuel gauge in his car was not terribly reliable. Just before he lit the blaze, Chilman had sent Julia Adcock a text message, posing as Neil, which he hoped would go towards passing his death off as suicide. Oh yes, I shall explain the reasoning behind this shortly. However, fierce as it had been, the blaze had failed to obscure, as Chilman had hoped it would, evidence of the earlier blow to Neil's head which had left his victim defenceless, and which poured cold water on the absolute shamble of bollocks story he was to come out with. But I shall let you hear it from his own words, for when he came to give evidence himself on Tuesday the 10th of August, Chilman, the only witness to appear for the defence, maintained that Neil had committed suicide and came out with a somewhat unreal story that he had known Neil Parkinson was going to kill himself but stressing that he had nothing to do with his death. Chilman, wearing jeans, trainers and an open-necked shirt, began his evidence by giving a recap of his life, telling the court how he'd been born and raised in Pencombe alongside his three sisters, and had gone on to complete a City and Guild's apprenticeship as a mechanic, later forming his own business, M&K Construction Services Limited. He'd spent most of his working life as an agricultural mechanic, working for many years alongside his father, to whom he was very close. His mother had passed away back in 2013, 
and his father at the start of 2019, and it was here that Chilman became tearful, describing the effect that his father's death had had upon him. It was totally devastating. He was my very best friend, to be honest with you, said Chilman. After being given chance to compose himself by Mr Justice Burbridge, Chilman recounted that he'd met Julia Adcock when she was going through a divorce and he would deliver her horse haylage. His father had also worked at her farm, then Goodship's farm in Bromyard, doing mowing, strimming, putting up fencing and general maintenance work. He described how they'd begun a relationship and that he'd moved with Juliet to Gilthedge Farm at around 2014, a new build farmhouse, telling the jury that the money put into it was all hers. He, his father and another workman had built stables for Juliet's daughter Holly, but the outside buildings and another land was unusable to be fair, Chilman told the jury. In fact, he claimed that the only reason Juliet had bought Gilthedge Farm was because of me, because there was so much work to do. He said of his ex-partner's children that he would do anything for them, though he accepted he had had some ups and downs with Holly. Chilman also said, I'm not the sort of person to argue, I just walk away. He went on to say that he coped with his father's death, okay at first, but just before the funeral, I couldn't cope with it, and working on the farm without him brought back memories. It had been this grief, this downward spiral, he claimed, that had led to Juliet ending their relationship for good in June of the previous year. Out of the blue, she said, that's it, it's all over, you're too miserable, he told the court. However, Chilman said that they'd split up before on several occasions, and he thought this was just another rough patch, before then merely sleeping in his van or in his workshop on her farm. Being Quite a proud person, as he described himself. He'd not wanted to return to his parents' home in Pencombe, he claimed. This was no rough patch, however, because of course, by this time, Julia had long since found happiness again with Neil Parkinson. Now this was probably the closest to telling the truth that Chilman would get through any of his accounts, for he had more bloody stories in him than Roald Dahl. In his police interviews, a video of one of which, from December the 15th of the previous year, was played to the jury, Chilman had admitted that he still loved Julia Adcock to bits, referring to her constantly throughout interviewers, my missus. He would also say things such as, I adore the ground she walks on, I'm obsessed with her, and she was my property as well, my chunk of gold. Crucially, he'd also said, I'm not able to let her go. Chilman accepted that to this extent, he'd put a tracking device on Juliet's car without her knowledge. Police had removed it the same day as the interview, and when analysed, it was found to have been active between July the 8th and August the 31st of the previous year. At this point, Mr Hayworth told the court, he'd done this because he thought she was having an affair and he needed to find out for himself. He wanted to see where she was going and whether she was telling him the truth. She was, he said, his life. He said that Neil Parkinson had taken his life away by taking his partner and his house. Chilman then told officers he was not happy with Juliet's relationship with Neil Parkinson 
and said he would like to know why Mr. Parkinson had had sex with my missus, as he described Juliet, though using a much cruder term to describe it, and denying he was sexually obsessed with her. Chilman was asked if he'd ever seen Mr. Parkinson and his former partner having sex, to which he said no, but accepted she was a sexually active person. He then admitted in the interview, He's made me angry. He's made me severely angry. I'll hold my hands up. However, Chilman claimed, he wasn't going to do anything about it. Now he changed tack here drastically when evidence from a friend of his, Andy Underwood, was now put before him and was forced to admit that he'd previously talked to Underwood about castrating Neil Parkinson, stressing though that he had decided, no, I ain't doing that. He said that a text message to his phone from Underwood saying, don't do this on your own, was a reference to this plan to castrate Neil Parkinson and not to murder him, a plan referred to as horrific by one of the officers interviewing him. When asked how he intended to castrate Mr. Parkinson, Chilman said, I don't know really, just cut it off, I have a penknife. However, he said he had cause to cancel this plan, and it was at this point of the interview that Chilman came out with his first account about the night of the murder, claiming that the plan was cancelled because he'd learned that Parkinson intended to kill himself. Yes, I kid you not. It was here that Chilman now admitted arranging to meet Neil in the lay-by between 9pm and 10pm on the night of his death, claiming Mr Parkinson had told him he intended to kill himself. For reasons unsatisfactorily explained, Chilman told officers he'd given a pay-as-you-go phone to Mr Parkinson while he had another, and they'd arranged to meet between 9 and 10pm on the night of Neil's death, Neil sharing his suicide plans with him. He told officers in interview that Neil Parkinson had said to him, I'm ready to commit suicide, I've had enough. Adding, he told me where he was going to do it. Chilman said Neil told him via message to follow him in the car, claiming he'd said, tonight's the night to do it. Sure enough, Chilman had gone along at the appointed time and had parked his pickup about 25 feet behind Mr Parkinson's BMW in the layby claiming Neil had stolen the two jerry cans from Gilt Edge Farm previously and which he had pre-stashed at the lay-by, retrieving them from a hedgerow. Chilman went on that he then asked Mr Parkinson, Are you sure you want to do this? To which Mr Parkinson replied, Yes, I've had enough, I've wrecked your life. I said to him, Are you alright? He said, Yeah. I said, I'll leave you to it then. Then I went back to my car continued Chilman. He then said, as soon as I got in my pickup, he must have lit it, describing hearing the big whoosh as the fire took hold. When an officer suggested how very painful a death this would have been, Chilman answered, well, I wouldn't want to be burned alive. He was asked about his decision to drive off once the fire took hold, to which he'd replied, I couldn't stay and watch it. I'm not that sick. When asked if he had thought about giving Mr Parkinson some help, he said, it was either him or me. He decided he wanted to go. I didn't do it to him. He'd done it to himself. It was his choice. I'm admitting I was there and it was going to happen, so I'm liable. I regret doing it now, 
Yes, I should have reported it, called 999. Chillman claimed he'd thrown away the Pagego mobile phone as he drove away, having left his own personal mobile phone at home because he didn't want to be traced. Though, of course, the evidence given by Holly Bradshaw could place Chillman near to the farmhouse on the night of the murder. Now, for someone who he claimed he had discussed castrating and who had made him angry, Chillman was adamant in the interview that he'd never laid a finger on Neil Parkinson, even though in a previous interview he'd admitted wanting to punch him and had considered beating him up, although not in front of his beloved Juliet. When Chillman was told there was blood on the gatepost to Gilt Edge Farm, he said, vaguely, Oh, is there? But was adamant that the blood was not his and that he was nowhere near the gatepost. He was asked if there'd been a commotion, to which Chillman replied, Not as far as I'm concerned, before he was asked, On December the 12th, did you smack him one? No, I didn't touch him on the 12th. Truthfully, I didn't lay a finger on him. Chilman had then replied. It's quite a story there, eh? It was only the first Chilman was to come out with as well. He continued by telling the court that on the 3rd of November of the previous year, he'd been driving in Pencombe Lane near his home when someone driving a black car behind began sounding the horn and flashing the headlights, making him pull over. He said that the car then pulled alongside his vehicle and someone inside said, Hey mate, there's something wrong with the back of your pickup. Chillman, who claimed he'd never seen this car before, told the jury he got out of his truck to have a look, crouching down to do so. He was suddenly attacked by both occupants of the other vehicle, who he described as having Liverpool or Scouse accents. When asked to describe the men, he said both were of medium to slim build, but went on, I couldn't see their faces, they had woolly hats on and masks of some description. The next thing I know, he's hitting me and kicking me. He's got me on the floor. I curled up in a ball to try and protect myself. In the end, they stopped when I stopped moving, he told the jury. As the men left, he then said they told him, This is a message from Neil, stay away. If you don't, your dogs will be next, then it will be your sister. By the next morning, Chillman claimed he had two black eyes starting and there was bruising between his legs which all went black, injuries that he told his sisters had been caused by him being smacked in the face by a branch. When asked in court why he hadn't told them the truth, he said, Because I felt a bit ashamed to be beaten up to be fair, plus I didn't want them worried. About a week later, Chillman claimed that he heard his spaniel, Bob, barking in the garden before he heard the dog whining and saw a man on the other side of the hedge running away. I took after them but couldn't catch them, he said, describing a black car that looked like the same one that had stopped when he was attacked in Pencombe Lane, then driving off towards Bromyard. When Bob was taken to the vets, Chillman told the jury, he was found to have suffered a broken leg, which Chillman claimed really needed pinning but because he was too old for the operation, he was merely given painkillers instead. Now this tale could not be confirmed, and there was no report of Chillman having reported either incident to police. It seemed as though he was now trying the tack of trying to paint Neil out 
to further besmirch his memory as some kind of figure involved with organised crime. So, bearing in mind that the jury had already been played the police interview video in which Chilman had given an already bollocks sounding account of the night of the murder, how do you think their reaction would possibly be when now, in the dock, he changed his story yet again? Chilman now told the jury that on the evening of his death, Neil Parkinson had contacted him via the unregistered pay as you go phones that he'd already admitted purchasing to the court and giving Neil one, and that Neil gave him a lift in his BMW from the farm drive to the layby. Chilman told the jury he was anxious and that Neil also seemed quite nervous. At the layby, he said Neil picked up two jerry cans which he recognised as being from Gilt Edge Farm because one had a white letter P marked on the side. Chilman said he got out of the passenger side of the BMW and, I quote, just stood there whilst Neil placed one jerry can in the front passenger footwell. I think he put the other one behind the driver's seat, he said. Chilman then said he'd asked Neil what was going on and Neil told him he had had enough of the car, it's really messing me about. I never really wanted to buy it and I'm going to torch it. Chilman said he asked Mr Parkinson why he didn't just sell the car, only to be told that his plan was to claim he had been carjacked and to claim on the insurance. He'd left then, Chilman claimed, and suggested that Neil must have died through misadventure in this pursuit. Mr Haywood was having none of this changing stories like, like change bloody undies malarkey, and in a terse exchange during cross-examination, highlighted this and told Chilman so, at first mentioning the planned castration. The previous day, when he'd been asked about it by his defence counsel, Alistair Williamson QC, Chilman had dismissed this as, it was a pure joke, a bit of a lad's thing. Mr Haywood began by asking Chilman why he hadn't told police it was a joke when he spoke about it in interview, to which Chilman replied, because I just didn't think it was very important. I thought it was a joke, a lad's joke. It was never going to happen. Mr. Haywood continued, Earlier, on your account, you said you'd watched Mr. Parkinson burn himself to death and you dismissed it as his choice. Chilman replied, I just thought it was what police wanted to hear. I just wanted to get out. Mr Haywood drew the attention of the court to the fact that upon being told by police the car fire looked suspicious, in his police interviews, Chilman had replied, whatever, he's out of the way now. Asked why he would say something so callous, Chilman said, I was totally fed up by this time, I was tired, I'd been locked up for over three days for something I haven't done, and I didn't understand and just said anything. I'd lost the will to live, to be fair. Mr. Haywood immediately retorted, You lost the will to lie, Mr. Chilman. Boom! Are you having that? This is when Mr. Haywood went on his machine gun delivery of putting things to Chilman that he, that he either did not respond to, could not answer, or would just deny, even if it contradicted his earlier accounts. He denied that he'd hated Neil Parkinson. The day before, during cross-examination by his own defence counsel, he had even said when asked by Mr. Williamson if he had harmed Neil. No, I never would. In a way, I quite liked him to be fair. Unreal this guy, eh? 
When asked how Neil's blood came to be on the gate at Gilt Edge Farm, Chilman answered, I have no idea how his blood got there. Mr Hayward said it was because someone had struck him forcefully. Not while I was stood there, no, replied Chilman. He further denied that he'd parked his car out of the way so you could lie in wait on foot. Denied he'd struck Neil with an object with a straight edge and with a hard weighty force and denied that he dropped the seats of Neil's BMW and put his body in there. Did you think you'd killed him or left him unconscious? said Mr Haywood. Chilman answered, no. He was then asked how Neil Parkinson's DNA had got onto his torch, and he replied, I don't know, but added that he had sat in Mr Parkinson's car. Mr Haywood put it to Chilman. Wasn't it because you'd picked up his badly beaten head and dumped him in the back of the car and driven to Ankerdine Road and burned it? Chilman replied, definitely not. Mr Haywood said, Having struck Neil over the back of the head, you never knew or cared whether he was alive. Chilman again answered, No. It must have been proper gripping stuff to see this, totally riveting. I always love the eloquence and the grasp of language that these legal eagles have. But I can imagine it was a trial that had its moving moments also, perhaps none more so than the evidence given by Neil Parkinson's son Christopher. He gave evidence in the form of an impact statement on behalf of he and his family, which read, As a son of Neil for 42 years, I speak of the heartfelt emptiness and sadness that I have had to endure recently and will have to for the rest of my life. I've lost my father and my best friend. No one will replace that, ever. My children Daisy and Lily have lost their grandfather, who they adored and were always so happy to see and be around. As a father to me, Neil would always be there for me whatever was happening in life. He always showed me support in whatever I wanted to do. Nothing was ever a problem to him, and he always had a positive, upbeat attitude towards life. He was always a great mate, a larger-than-life character, who will never be forgotten. So much has now changed for our family. Neil was also a father to my younger brother Jack, and he was a son of my 96-year-old grandmother, who he'd been living with and who he was devoted to looking after with her dementia condition. She's been left confused and lonely. What happened to my dad was so cruel we as a family can't help but wonder how he must have felt in the last moments of his life. Was he alone? Was he afraid? Did he think of us? It leaves us as a family with unbearable pain. Mr Parkinson then turned in the witness box and looked directly at Chilman, who didn't meet his eyes back raising his voice slightly as he said to his father's alleged killer, Mr Mark Andrew Frank Chilman, we address you as a murderer. How could you be so heartless? We have so many unanswered questions. Deep down we will never truly know what happened to our dad, granddad, son and brother. He didn't deserve to leave the world in the way he did. You left Neil's body in an inhumane way and walked away. At least you will have the rest of your life to reflect on your actions that night. Our light in our life has gone off and will shine no more. Mr Justice Burbridge then excused Christopher and expressed his condolences to Neil's family as they looked on from the public gallery. Powerful words indeed, eh? After retiring shortly after 2pm on the afternoon of Wednesday, August the 11th, 
the jury of nine men and three women arrived back into court number one at around 10.50am the following morning. After a slight delay in the verdict being announced to allow family members time to return to the public gallery to observe, the foreperson of the jury then stood and announced they'd reached the unanimous verdict of guilty after just three hours and nine minutes of deliberation. Ordered to stand in the dock, Chilman lowered his head and closed his eyes as he learned of his fate. Mr Justice Burbridge, before deferring sentencing until the following Monday, told him, The jury have convicted you by unanimous verdict on cogent evidence of the killing of Mr Parkinson, whose character you have set out to besmirch during this trial. Before he was led down into the cells, Chilman was told that a sentence of life imprisonment was the only sentence that awaited him. It was the minimum term he would serve that would be decided Monday. Just imagine hearing that said to you, eh? I'd lay a bloody ostrich egg, I think. At 10am the following Monday, the 16th of August, Chilman again stood in the same dock, impassive, his head lowered, to be addressed by Mr Justice Burbridge, who told him, in personal statements read out by Neil's son Christopher and his wife Carol, you took the life of a much-loved man. The court has heard how central he was to the life of many people. Neil Parkinson had many years to live and much to look forward to. He was a father, son, brother, grandfather and partner, thus many people have been left grieving. On December the 12th, 2020, you lay in wait in a remote area near Giltedge Farm, Broadwas. The evidence shows you had planned this for some days or even weeks, increasingly appearing near to the farm, staking it out and scoping the area and the situation. There was an intention to kill and significant pre-planning. It is difficult for the court to conclude you intended anything other than to kill. It was your intention to do harm to someone who had replaced you in the affections of your previous partner, Julia Adcock. Something you could not countenance, for as you said in your police interview, I love her to bits. After Miss Adcock told you to leave the farm, you immediately harboured a desire to cause Neil Parkinson harm. On the day of the killing, you left your own phone at Bromyard Down, so the cell sighting was something you could rely on as an alibi. I am satisfied when Mr Parkinson drove down the driveway away from the farm to the gate in order to go and care for his dementia-suffering 94-year-old mother as he did each and every evening. When he got out of the vehicle to lock the gate, you sprung upon him. You struck him at least once with an object to the back of his head, which rendered him unconscious. You drove him to a lay-by and there, in his own car, arranged him in the driver's seat and poured petrol over him and the vehicle. Mercifully, Parkinson would not have known of the immense heat that engulfed him. You then sent Miss Adcock a lengthy text in despicable and defamatory terms, trying to suggest it was Mr Parkinson himself attempting to commit suicide. You must have sent that text at the time Mr Parkinson was being immolated. In an interview with police, you told lie after lie and said you were with Mr Parkinson, but he took his own life. It was when forensics came in that you had to change the nature of your defence, as you could not explain the distressed fracture to the rear of the skull. So, you had to tell different lies. Not only did you say Mr Parkinson had told you to dispose of the multiple phones, 
but he had taken you to the lay-by where he had hidden the jerry cans, telling you that he intended to set fire to his own car as insurance fraud. It must have been a strain for you to try and remember all of the lies that you have invented. And these lies had now each caught up with a monstrously evil killer. Mark Andrew Chilman was then sentenced to the standard term of life imprisonment and told he must serve a minimum tariff of 22 years before he would ever be considered for parole. As he was jailed, Chilman set his lower jaw, clasped his hands in front of him and blinked before continuing to stare straight ahead, looking neither left nor right as he was taken down to the cells below the court. Following the verdict, Mr Parkinson's family issued a statement saying Neil was a loving, caring, happy person who enjoyed life to the full. His infectious personality will be missed by all of his family and friends in our local community and further afield that he'd met throughout his life. And the memories of him as a loving father, grandfather, brother and son will be remembered dearly for all the happy times. As a family, it's been a very difficult eight months and our lives have been changed forever. The result from court today means we can now have some peace now that the individual responsible for Neil's death will spend time within the prison system, away from society. We take a small amount of comfort that at least he cannot cause harm and the grief to anyone else like he did to Neil and our family. We hope that during his time in prison, he reflects and regrets his actions. We would like to express our thanks to all parties involved in bringing the evil calculated individual to justice that took Neil from us. This includes the police force members that have been involved from the tragic start, throughout court and continue to support us at this heartbreaking time. We would also like to express our gratitude to the courts and jury members that have heard the case. Paul Reed of the Crown Prosecution Service added, Mark Chilman has today been held accountable for his actions with a lengthy prison sentence. He killed Mr Parkinson out of jealousy after subjecting his ex to a stalking campaign. Chilman just couldn't accept that his relationship had ended and had even threatened to kill himself, claiming he couldn't live without her. His selfish, deliberate actions cost Mr Parkinson his life and have now left Mr Parkinson's loved ones with the devastation of this tragic loss. Tragic indeed, eh? I always shake my head at such senseless cases of someone's life ending due to the actions of an individual who finds it easier to express blame at another person rather than face up to their own flawed personality being responsible for the ending of a relationship. I can't think off the top of my head through the back catalogue of the show of such a prime example of this either than Mark Chilman and his horrific actions. Whilst perhaps not a likeable sounding individual, this is at least an individual who had only ever reportedly come to police attention once before in his life, that was receiving a caution following an altercation with a work colleague some years before. But he went big or went home for a first offence indeed, didn't he? As much as there's an element of prior planning there to Chilman's actions, the theft of the fuel, the quick disposal of the body and removal of any traces of murder, or so he hoped anyway, he must have been somewhat absolutely bloody deluded if he a. thought that his far-fetched and basically bullshit story would ever have been accepted, 
when he knew that he would have been the prime suspect in any resulting investigation, b that even if it did somehow fool everybody, then it would bring Juliet back to him, all hearts and flowers, and c why bring such immediate attention to such a violent and horrific death? For example, why not simply bury Neil somewhere and leave his car parked quietly up? Some people, you just couldn't make them up, could you? Now what is without question is the abhorrent nature of Chilman's actions. I mean, murder is murder, but to immolate a person whilst they're still alive, albeit gravely wounded, it shows a contempt beyond comprehension, but ultimately serves to highlight just how flawed and pathetic a person we're talking about here with Chilman. No better than a petulant child unable to face up to being the one at fault and taking the easy route of blaming another, and then having the gall to suggest all sorts to blacken Neil's name further after his death, from coming out with crap besmirching Neil for being an abuser of women to even suggesting he was involved in organised crime or insurance fraud, and not caring a damn how much such unfounded and hurtful allegations would hurt so many people. Wicked isn't the word, is it? And all this driven by this burning desire for a woman who didn't desire him back whatsoever, because he'd long since driven her away. Well, actually, no, it sounds less and less like that he was driven by a burning desire because he couldn't be without his soulmate, he couldn't function without the one he loved, but rather, it smacks more of, he couldn't stand to see someone he considered more as something, his property, having a new life and being happy again for the first time in who knows how long. Just not with him. Now most people faced with this, you'd pick yourself up, dust yourself down, and eventually you'd get on with your life, wouldn't you? Whatever hurts for a while, will always get better. For many others, they may start off acting like Chilman had, but will eventually come to their senses and realise what a chilling prick they're being and pack it in. But there's just that few that really would do absolutely anything, such as a person under their skin, even murder. And for people like that, I doubt really that they ever fully will get them out from under it. Mark Chilman is, as the episode drops, not even into the complete first year of his life sentence, and I hope the remaining 21 years are filled with as much misery as he has brought to so many, and I sincerely hope he is tormented by his actions from day to night. That is, of course, if he can ever face up to what he's done, and I sincerely doubt that he ever really will. Even the cold, hollow clang of a prison cell door couldn't seem to be that short, sharp shock for him to do so, for it even emerged during the trial that whilst he'd been on remand, Chilman had still been attempting to strike up contact with Julia Adcock, sending her letters and making telephone calls to her from prison. And if that's how he still was, with the very faint possibility of his liberty still available to him, then how about now, when he's nothing to lose? leaving Juliet, her family, and Neil's, with a sentence arguably measurable to that of the lurker in the lay-by. I would love as always to hear your thoughts and feedback on the tale of Mark Chilman and his terrible crimes, the lurker in the lay-by, which by now I hope that you know exactly where you can do just that. There's a thread for the episode now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, 
or if you want to have a chat about it wherever, you know that I'm always happy to catch up with you folks wherever, don't mind in the slightest. Now, this long promised series arc is coming soon, but I've decided to leave it a tiny little bit longer just yet, and I've recruited Jess Carter into it as well, so look out for the outlines touch as only Jess can do, coming up as a part of it also. Good times. I do have a few other tales researched before we crack on with that lot, which promises to be one of the darkest I've brought here, I can guarantee, so I shall be bringing you those beforehand. With that, it's now wrap-up time here, so all that remains for me to say is a big thanks from the True Crime Enthusiast and the True Crime Enthusiast Cat for you joining us today, hoping that you all stay safe out there, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining us, and goodbye for now. <laughs>